Well, we've, uh, this is our third installment in our Exodus series, and we started a little while back, and we started looking at Genesis, and we traced this line of sin, this line of God's providence through the book of Genesis. And then last week, we looked at Exodus chapter 1, and we had this 50,000-foot view of God's providential help uh, and preservation of the people of Israel. We saw that Pharaoh had a plan. His plan was to oppress and suppress the people of Israel to make sure that they couldn't grow mightier. And we saw that his plan was ineffective. And then we also saw how God worked through oppression to multiply the people of Israel. And tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to go from that 50,000-foot view, and we are going to zoom way down to look at one family mainly at a mother and her son. And we are again going to see God's providential deliverance. And we see it in Exodus chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Exodus chapter 2. And I will read the first 10 verses. The first 10 verses. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, every member of your family has a story of how they joined the family. Most children join the family through birth. As uh, I'm sure all of you know, I have a child who joined through adoption. And everybody has a different story. Your parents have a story about you. If you have children, you have a story about each one of them. And it can be kind of fun and exciting to share those stories. Uh, They can be encouraging to new mothers. Everything's going to be okay. Here's all the crazy things that happened to me while I was in the hospital, but it's going to be okay. Uh, Sometimes there are odd details that pop up. My own parents have, uh, from time to time, talked about my birth story, and apparently I was a regular Esau when I was born. I was very hairy, and uh, they also named me uh, the Chinless Wonder. When you were born, you were the Chinless Wonder. And people will talk about what time it was, how they got to the hospital. A friend had to drive the wife because the husband couldn't make it home from work. 
this baby is coming right now. Some people uh, didn't even know they were pregnant, and they go to the hospital concerned about something else, and they come home with a baby. There's all these different details. We've had people ask us about adoption. Uh, this is a story of a child joining a family, and they want to know, what was it like? What were the concerns? And we did the same thing. We wanted to know. We wanted to know the story and all the details that went along with it. One detail that sticks out most vividly about my oldest being born is that I was really cold, um, which, you know, Taylor's the one doing all the work, but I was just thinking I could really go for a hoodie right now. Uh, maybe they could turn the heat up in here. Um, but but these, these stories, they're happy and joyful, and sometimes they're full of complications and concerns, time in the hospital, difficulty and struggle, but we tell them. And what we have here in Exodus 2, 1 through 10, is a birth story. It's a story of delivery, and it's a story of deliverance. And so we're going to ask a question of our text this evening. How did God deliver this baby? How did God deliver this baby? We have to keep in mind that Exodus is primarily a book about God's deliverance. So we need to have the right mindset as we approach the text. How did God deliver this baby? Well, he did it through three people. Three people. He did it through a faithful mother, a compassionate princess, and a courageous older sister. A faithful mother, a compassionate princess, and a courageous older sister. And so we should start with the faithful mother. We see in chapter 2, verse 2, that everything is just very generic. Uh, Backing up to verse 1, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. It's very generic. The idea here is that this could be you. This could be any family in Egypt. This could be, not in Egypt, but any family among the people of Israel. It could be any family. A man and a woman got married, and they had a child. This is something that happens all the time. One detail that we have to remember is that at the end of chapter 1, we see the edict from Pharaoh laid out. Remember he said in verse 22, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, we know who this man and this woman are because we know who this child is. It's Moses. We heard his name at the end of, at the end of uh, our reading tonight in verse 10. And we know from Exodus 6, verse 20, that Moses' parents are Amram and Jochebed. And we also know that they've already had two children. They have Miriam, and they also have Aaron. Miriam, it's kind of up in the air. She might be six to ten years old. Aaron's about three years old. But this baby is the first one born in the family since Pharaoh's edict that says all of the male Hebrews are to be killed. This is the first one. And so we can imagine we need to put ourselves in the place of Jochebed, of this Levite woman, as she's pregnant and she's walking about and she sees Egyptian soldiers or she sees other Egyptians and she knows the law. The law is if she has a son, it is to be killed. And so we can imagine with her that what if I have a boy? What will happen? What will we do? But now the baby is here. She conceived, 
She bore a son. She has a problem. She really does. She has a problem. What is she going to do? Well, we see in verse 2 what she decides to do. When she saw that he was a fine child, or the New King James Version says a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. She saw that he was a beautiful child. Well, everybody thinks that their children are beautiful. Uh, Taylor's grandparents, my wife's grandparents, entered her uncle Stan, who's their firstborn, uh, in some sort of cute baby contest when he was born. Took a picture of him, sent it off in the mail, and if I remember correctly, he didn't win. Um, but, you know, he's a cute baby because parents, they have a baby and they're like, this is the most beautiful baby that I've ever seen. And then you have another one and you're like, this is the most beautiful baby that I've ever seen. And somehow every single subsequent child is the most beautiful child that you have ever seen. They're beautiful. They're so cute. They're cute and they're snuggly and their cheeks are so soft. And my particular favorite thing to do is feel the soft spot on their head when they're first born. You can feel their pulse. They're beautiful. But is, is that what it means here? I'm sure she looked at Moses and thought, wow, he's really cute. But we actually learn in other places in Scripture that when it says that she saw him and he was a fine child or a beautiful child, there's a little bit more to it. The language here in Exodus 2 is the same language that's used in Genesis 1.31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. The literal Hebrew, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I've read people who are, the literal Hebrew here in Exodus 2 says she saw him and that he was good. This is kind of creation language. Well, Hebrews 11.23 tells us a little bit more. It says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So we're given a little bit more of a full picture in Hebrews 11.23. Moses' parents looked at him. They see he's a beautiful child. And their decision to hide him is not just based on, wow, he's really cute, but it's an act of faith. It's an act of faith. And Acts 7, 20 through 22 actually drives this home just a little bit more. Stephen is preaching before he is stoned, and he says, starting in Acts 7, verse 20, at this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. There was something Uh, Excuse me, let me continue on just a little bit more. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. He was beautiful in God's sight. There's something distinctly different about this little baby boy. Something is different. We don't know exactly what it was. We don't know if it was some sort of divine revelation to Amram and Jochebed about Moses where they looked at him and somehow God revealed to them that this baby is going to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt or if they just looked at him and they had this sense that he is just meant for something more. We're not told. But somehow they knew he is fair, he is beautiful in God's sight. This is a special child. Now, Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
this mother had hope that God would spare her son. That God would spare her son. But how could that possibly happen? She had to hide him away, and everything is really stacked up against her. Everything is stacked up against her. Notice that her faith didn't lead her to foolish behavior. In her faith, she didn't walk about in the open with Moses, but she hides him away. John Currid says that she was prudent and wise in her faith. The wise thing to do is to hide this child. But it also meant that she wasn't afraid. She didn't hide him out of fear. Not out of fear, but it's out of faith. She is trusting the Lord. He has a command. She knew that the righteous thing to do was to hide her son and to keep him alive. Well, faith gives us strength to do what is right. This gives us the strength we need. Psalm 73:26 tells us that my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And we know this to be true, don't we? Our tendency is weakness. Our tendency is to fail. But we have God to help us and to bolster us and to give us strength to do what He calls us to do. Where did Moses' mother get this faith to hide him? From the Lord. Ephesians 2 tells us that our faith is a gift from God. You have to have faith that God's way is better. And maybe people would say, well, you know, I mean, this is just natural instinct. This, this is just what mothers do. They just protect their children. They take care of their children. And I think, yes, that is true. But that natural instinct, that desire to take care of our children, that too is a gift from God. What is our natural inclination? Our natural inclination is towards selfishness, towards self-preservation. And so the selfish thing to do for Jochebed would be to take care of herself, preserve her own life. But instead she trusts in the Lord. She has faith in Him. Second Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Here we have weakness. You have a slave woman with an illegal son that she's hiding. She is in a position of weakness even in society. It would be a patriarchal society. But God uses her faith to thwart Pharaoh's plans to destroy the people of Israel. Just like we saw last week. God used Shifra and Pua to thwart Pharaoh's plans. Once again, we are reminded that God is using the people that are there to carry out his purpose. So faith is not absent from the things we do or the way we live our lives. We must walk by faith. Through Jesus Christ, it is our peace with God and it's also the driving force of our actions as we follow God. We walk by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 tells us. So one step at a time, in our weakness, we seek to do what is pleasing in God's sight. And so what did she do? She hid her baby. But there came a time when she couldn't do that anymore. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer. It just wasn't possible. He's grown up. His cry gets louder and louder and louder 
and louder, and you can't hide him. You can't do it. We've run out of time. So what does she do? She has to come up with another plan. So in verse 3, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She puts the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. So bitumen and pitch, this is tar and oil. She's She's taking a basket and she's making this basket watertight. She's preparing it so that she can put Moses in the river and he will be safe. And she takes it down, she places it among the reeds and she leaves him there. And then her sister is there as well. We don't know if her sister was just curious about what would happen to little baby Moses, little brother Moses, or if mom said, you watch over your brother. Maybe she couldn't stay. We don't know. We don't know, but she is there. And we also don't know what her plan was. Was her plan to leave him there and then perhaps come back and to care for him and feed him and then leave him there? Or is her plan that perhaps somebody else will find him? I just can't hide him anymore. But I'm trusting that God is going to protect this child, so I'm hiding him someplace else. Now, the word for basket that is used here is actually the same word that's used of Noah's ark. She built him an ark in verse 3. And she sealed him up in it, like God sealed in Noah's family. And she put him on the waters, just like Noah Moses' fate is entirely in God's hands. It always was, but this is such a very obvious act of faith. My son is beautiful in your sight, but I can't hide him, so I commit him to you. Why use the same word for ark here that we see used in Genesis? It's the the one only other place that we see it used. It's used in Genesis 6 and 7, and it's used here, but it's not used anywhere else. There's no other basket or receptacle uh, or container in Scripture that is described this way. It's here and in Genesis. Well, what we see here is that just like Noah, Moses is here in the place of death. Noah and the ark was on the waters, and that was the place of death. Everybody else around him was dying under punishment. And so it is with Moses. The other baby boys who would have been down at the Nile They're not being hidden. They are being executed, thrown to their death on the Nile. So what we see here is that Moses is inside the ark and Noah was inside the ark. And who made the ark watertight? Genesis 7.16 says that they went in, they went in male and female of all flesh as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. Calvin writes, It is indeed not to be doubted that Noah had been endued with new ability and sagacity. So that means God gave him special wisdom and skill to build the ark, that nothing might be defective in the structure of the ark. But lest even this favor should be without success, it was necessary for something greater to be added. Wherefore, that we might not measure the mode of preserving the ark by the capacity of our own judgment, Moses teaches us that the waters were not restrained from breaking in upon the ark by pitch or bitumen, which is a reference to Genesis 6.14, but rather by the secret power of God and by the interposition of his hand. It's the same thing here. Moses in this basket on the Nile is preserved by the hand of God. 
He can't save himself. It's impossible. There's literally nothing Moses could do. And neither can his mother. If Moses is to be rescued, it must be God who does it. And it's to this rescue that we now turn. So we have a faithful mother who chose to follow God because she saw that Moses was beautiful in God's sight. And she chose to hide him. And when she couldn't hide him anymore, she puts him on the river. And then we see in verse 5, the compassionate princess. In verse 5, we have the compassionate princess. She came down to the river at the right time. She came down to the river in the right place. She looked in the right spot. She was interested in what she saw, and she sent her servant to retrieve it. What's the difference between Pharaoh's daughter seeing the basket and ignoring it and Pharaoh's daughter seeing the basket and having it retrieved? The difference is Jesus Christ. The difference is Jesus Christ. God had a plan. He had a deliverer who was born to Jochebed and Amram. And this child was going to come up, grow up, and deliver the people of Israel. So this child must be rescued. God had set forth his plans. And each person here is playing their part. So just as the ark is made safe after the flood, so Moses' little ark is retrieved from the reeds and brought to Pharaoh's daughter. But this would be exactly what we wouldn't necessarily want to happen. Oh no, the daughter of our enemy now has the baby. The daughter of our enemy now has the baby. And she opens it, and what does she see? She sees one of these little condemned Hebrew baby boys. Here he is. He's entirely at her mercy. Who could stop her? She's a princess in the house of Pharaoh. She's the daughter of the king. In fact, it's not so much who could stop her, but it is her duty as an Egyptian to follow the king's command and to execute this child. But she doesn't. She doesn't do it. The daughter of the king who put in place the plan to commit genocide sees a baby and responds with mercy with compassion, with pity, rather than following the king's edict. So not every lost sinner is absolutely as evil as they could possibly be. Everyone is lost. Romans 3.12 tells us that all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then later in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone is fallen. Everyone born in sin. Everyone goes their way, seeking after the world, seeking after what makes them happy, what would satisfy them. Apart from Christ. Totally fallen. But we know that people do good. Genesis 20, verse 6, tells us why it is that some people do good. This is Abimelech. God is speaking to Abimelech in a dream. And God has kept Abimelech from sinning against Sarah. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. It is I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. God kept Abimelech from sinning against Sarah. Paul points out that the Gentiles do keep the law in Romans 2.14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law 
by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So here we have in Scripture an acknowledgement that people who have never heard of God, who are not seeking after God, do have common grace given to them. And we should praise the Lord for that. If we have happy marriages, if we have children who obey, if we have good employers or any good thing that we have or that somebody does, this is a grace of God upon them. And when he removes his hand of grace and mercy, people fall further and further into sin. So we have a compassionate princess and God was merciful to her in preventing her from being as wicked as she could possibly be in her heart. And he was merciful to Moses. So she has pity. God protects the future leader of the people of Israel who will go before Pharaoh with Pharaoh's own daughter. With his own daughter. Well, we also have a courageous sister. We have a courageous sister. I recently watched a mini-series called A Small Light. Uh, It's very good. I recommend it as much as you can recommend anything, I suppose. But it follows Meep Gies and her husband Jan Gies and their friends as they live under German occupation in Amsterdam during World War II. Meep Gies works for Otto von Frank, the father of Anne Frank, whose diary most American middle and high school students read while studying U.S. history or world history. And this miniseries poses an interesting question. What do you do when danger surrounds you and not going along with the crowd will most likely lead to your death? What do you do? And it follows these different characters in a small light, each one making a decision. The Franks decide to hide in plain sight up in the attic. And the main character, Meep Gies, she's the one who's bringing them food. Her decision is, I must help these people hide from the Nazis. I have to help them. Her husband gets involved in the resistance and he starts fighting back. Other friends of theirs decide this is a good opportunity to make money. So I'll make money off of the Nazis and I'll just live a really good life. And other people think, I just have to keep my head down and survive. Well, what does this little courageous sister do? What does she do? Here, Miriam, Moses' older sister who's still quite young, sees that Pharaoh's daughter has found her baby brother and she must have been wondering what is she going to do with him. And then she, the young slave girl, approaches the princess of Egypt, and opens her mouth and speaks. Now, maybe God gave this little girl just that particular uh, quality of character where you, know, you meet some young kids and they'll just, they'll just go up to anybody and start talking to them. They're not afraid of anybody and they like to converse with adults. Maybe that's her. Maybe not. Maybe her heart is pounding. When I was a little kid, I was terrified of basically asking people for anything uh, you want ketchup at the restaurant? My parents were like, ask for it yourself. And it's like, no thanks, I'm good. I don't want to ask. I'd be sitting in Sunday school class with Mark Skeels. I can remember this when I was a kid. And we would read scripture and we'd read one verse at a time. And all I would be thinking the entire time was, it's getting closer and closer to my turn to read. And I'd just be reading that verse over and over again. 
And one time he said, Daniel, can you just read it again? We, we couldn't hear you at all. I was terrified of speaking. I just didn't want to do it. In all of these situations I mentioned, they mean nothing. They mean absolutely nothing. There is really nothing on the line at all. But here we have a great social divide, a massive class divide. You have an enslaved people and the ruling class. You have wealth and poverty. You have age. There is a culture. There is a massive divide between Miriam and the princess of Egypt. They couldn't be in different, more different situations uh, if you could think of another one. It's just they are so different. She should never be speaking to her. Miriam should never go up to her. But she does. She's courageous and she opens her mouth. And what does she offer? She offers help. It's really quite sad, but her offer is very legitimate. There would have been many Hebrew women who could have nursed Moses because many Hebrew women would have lost their sons. And so Miriam pipes up and offers to find a nurse for the daughter of Pharaoh. Well, how often do we keep silent when we should speak up? Because we're afraid of what someone might think or say or do. In the beginning of the book of Joshua, God tells Joshua what he is to do, that he's supposed to go through and conquer these lands. And he reminds Joshua multiple times, be strong and take courage. Be strong and take courage. We need that. We need those reminders. We need to be strong and take courage and be ready to answer, be ready to speak up. We need to pray for courage. We need to encourage one another to press on and to speak what is right. That's what we need to do. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says that God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Here is a young girl that God uses to prevent Pharaoh's wicked plan from going forward. Who am I? Who are you? Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. But God can still use us. He condescends to use His people to move His plan forward, to advance His kingdom. You think, how I was just thinking about this the other day, because you know, I have young children, and so often they want to help with things. And, you know, they'll, they'll come up and just last night I was uh, throwing a pizza in for the kids to eat. And my daughter came up to me and she's like, can I help you? Can I help you make the pizza? And my first response was, no, no, I, I'll, I'll do it. Right? No. Because I can do it faster. I can do it better. Uh, if I just do it, it'll get done right away. I know that there's not going to be any issues. No one's going to hit a wrong button and we're going to be cooking the pizza for 60 minutes instead of 18. Like none of that's going to happen. But God condescends to use his children who are so weak and so frail and you think, what do we have to offer? And yet he chooses to use us. He uses a courageous little girl to protect this little boy. So we need courage. Young children aren't in here, but parents of young children, we can go home and we can remind our children you are not too young for God to use you for His kingdom. 
We are not too weak to be used by God for His kingdom. What is the outcome then of this faithful mother and this compassionate princess and this courageous sister? How is it that God delivered this baby? Well, He did it through these three people. And what is the outcome? It is abundant blessing. Abundant blessing. Moses is saved. He's saved from destruction. For God orchestrates all things. For from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. Our expectation is that Moses would have been destroyed. That's our expectation. How could, it, how could this possibly be? How could this child survive? You put it on the Nile River and you expect this infant to survive? And yet, this is what God's plan was. Exodus is showing us who God is. He is mightier and more powerful than the kings of the earth. He is mightier than an edict that says every Egyptian must participate in this infanticide. He uses a mother, a sister, and a princess. But as it is with God, Moses is not merely spared. For God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And the greatness of God is on full display here. His goodness and His mercy and His abundance is spread out before us to meditate on. Who is it that nurses the infant? Moses. It's his very own mother. It's his very own mother. He's not just saved. He's returned to his mother. Jochebed could have hoped that perhaps someone else would have come along and found him and hid him, or that somebody else would have been compassionate on him and taken him in, and at least her son would have survived this. He doesn't have to spend, he wouldn't have to spend his toddler years hidden in a room. But instead, this isn't what we see. Miriam comes back and says, you're not going to believe this. Pharaoh's daughter came down and picked up Moses. And then I went up and I said, would you like me to find a nurse? And she said, yes. And I figured you could do that since you're his mom. This is amazing. Just the more you think about it, the more you see the mercy of God in this passage. The mercy of God to this mother. He can have a life. Instead of having to hide him away in a basket on the way back from the Nile, she carries him out in the open. Because now this baby who once was condemned to death is now under the protection of the daughter of the king. He has done abundantly more than she could have ever hoped for. She gets to nurse him. She gets to rock him to sleep. She gets to teach him about his God. She gets to study the contours of his face. She'll get to tell her husband Amram about the new face he made today. She won't be hoping that perhaps the princess will come down to the river and she'll just get to spy him from far away. She will be holding him. He has done abundantly more than she could possibly imagine. The boy who was under a death sentence is now protected. But God doesn't stop at that. Wouldn't that have been enough? He piles blessing upon blessing. My children, they often come home. When I come home, they come out to the car and they pull the car door open. And they have something super, super important to tell me, of course. 
recently one of them was, we found a leaf bug. Right? They ran out and they said, Daddy, Daddy, we found a leaf bug. Well, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about Amram, who we really don't know much about in this passage at all. But Amram would come home, and we can imagine that his children come out, and they say, Daddy, Daddy, we get to keep Moses. Mommy went, and she put him in a basket, and she hid him down by the river. But then Pharaoh's daughter came, and she picked up the basket, and she opened it up, and she saw that it was Moses. And I ran back, and I told Mom, and I asked, I asked Pharaoh's daughter if she wanted to nurse him. And she said, yes, and Mom's going to do it, and he gets to stay with us. He gets to stay with us. Spend time meditating on the greatness of God to this family. This one family. We have that 50,000 foot view. And it is amazing to see what God did in Exodus 1. And now we come all the way down and we see how God cares about families. He cares about a mother and a son. Some years down the road, here in verse 10, we know that Moses eventually is taken to Pharaoh's daughter and is raised by her. And A.W. Pink writes of this, In the end, God compels Pharaoh to give board, lodging, education to the very man which accomplished the very thing that Pharaoh was trying to prevent, namely the deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt. Thus was Pharaoh's wisdom turned to foolishness and Satan's devices defeated. And we can't read this passage and take from it that God will deliver like this temporally, that means in this world, in this life, like this all the time. Pastor Dale just recently preached in Acts 12 about James and Peter. Both arrested, James beheaded, Peter delivered from prison. So we submit our desires to God. We pray and we ask and we faithfully follow And we say, your will be done. And what we need to remember is what Pastor Dale reminded us, that James, while he was not delivered from his earthly execution, he was delivered. Everything was made right for James. He opened his eyes in glory. But aren't we glad that God does deliver like this in Scripture? Don't we praise Him? And if you think through your life, you can think of times when God has delivered, when He has done abundantly more for you than what you could possibly imagine. How did God deliver this baby? He used people, real people. He used a mother, a princess, and a little girl. He set up a contrast between the powerful king of Egypt and these three women. And the might of Pharaoh could not stop God's purposes from being fulfilled. Moses' early life is very similar to that of Christ's. Both born under punishment of execution, threat of execution and death. Both born under oppression. Both born to lowly and poor parents. Both Hebrews, both destined for great works. Moses to deliver the people of Israel. Jesus Christ the Word made flesh, very God of very God, born to set His people free, to take His people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. 
born to take on the iniquity of His people. He came to deliver His people from their sins. He is the greater Moses, the truly spotless Lamb, the perfect One who was able to ultimately save. Well, are you like Jochebed, following after God and seeking to be faithful, knowing that your salvation comes only from God? Keep pressing on. Keep following faithfully after Him. Looking to see what is it that You would have me to do. Reading God's Word. Saying, what is it that You would have me to do? Give me the strength to do it. Help me to obey. Perhaps you are more like Pharaoh's daughter. You say, I'm a good person. I don't always do the evil thing. I would have saved baby Moses too. I've got a good moral compass. And I think I do the right thing. If you were asked the question, why should God accept you into into heaven? Would your answer be only because of Jesus Christ? Only because he has taken my sins and borne them on the cross. If that's not your answer, then you are in the place of death. Moses was in the place of death on the Nile. But if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, like a shipwrecked man who sees a light in the distance, desperately calling out for help, Jesus Christ will answer and He will save. He will put you in the ark. He will rescue you out of the Nile. He will put you on solid ground and He will be faithful to you all the days of your life. He will always do good for you because He has done abundantly more than we could possibly Imagine that He has taken on our sin. That's abundantly more. He has made us pure. He has given us His righteousness. That is abundantly more. Let's pray.